Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about tabletop role-playing games, tabletop war games, and board games. I'm your host, Troy, and with me, my co-host... I'm Ed. Always Ed. Always here. My pronouns are they and them. Almost forgot it. I think I forgot mine. They're he, him. Oh no, our pronouns are in flux. Gender fluidity for all. Well, our pronouns are currently not was, were, so I think we're okay. <laughs> Today we are going to talk about the Warlock. The Dungeons and Dragons class that's all about making deals with devils and casting spells. It's another magic caster. I'm more of a peace key myself. You like that joke? It's a good joke. Been saving that up for a whole 30 seconds. Nice. You got a timing, you know, because the essence of comedy is... Um... Timing. It's, it's It's something. We'll find it. But before we get to Warlocks, we have a segment called The Week in Hobby. So, Ed, what have you done in the last uh, three days since we've recorded? Uh, I guess a surprising amount. I'm still working on uh, Missile Threat, making some slow but steady progress on the little tiny jets, just kind of trying to get a little bit of paint in there when I can. I uh, got my hardbound, quote, hardbound copy of Missile Threat in the mail, which is nice. Uh, kind of wish the print quality was a little bit better, but... I mean, I got it for an extra $3 on the PDF, so why am I complaining? It's just nice to have a physical book. Is it a print-on-demand copy? Yeah, it's from uh, uh, War Games Vault. They are also affiliated with DriveThruRPG, so they do a lot of like the indie print-on-demand stuff. So it's not too out of the realm of what I had expected. I'm just, for some reason, I'm always like, oh, it's, it's like one step off of newsprint. But, eh, oh well. The uh, designer, they... They got my money. I got my game. Yeah, it's coming from a graphic and print design person. Print-on-demand services are a really cool idea, but the cost required to do high-quality single-shot printing is not is not right. Yeah. The ma- machines and like equipment and stuff you need to do high-quality single runs of things just really isn't isn't around and probably won't be for a while until that starts to become a larger market and even then it's still going to cost more than you would want yeah like i said it was an extra three bucks and then i've been trying to do some 3d printing because i'm feeling uh the call of the slav much more heavily lately and a lot of my stalker themed stuff is probably gonna have to be made via 3D printing, but my printer is being a pain. Uh, It's failing pretty frequently. I had a print that was running for 15 and a half hours, and when I came home today, all that was in there was a foot, which was disappointing. And it's, uh, the keypad on the front has started to freeze up, and it looks like the resin vat on it might be starting to leak, which is frustrating. So I'm probably just going to take it all apart, get it all clean, and come back to it once I can maybe figure out a better way to get everything set up rather than just having it sit outside the back door and do its thing. Yeah, I, I was suggesting you should get a grow tent. Yeah, I looked at those. Those are those are generally pretty expensive. I was looking to see if I could find a, a cheaper solution. Uh, a lot of people suggested 
getting a small like cardboard box and putting it over the back of the vent and then having a like a dryer hose going out the window, kind of like your uh, in window air conditioners. I just don't know if I just don't know if it'd be a good idea to have like the garage window open all the time since that's just going to let all the cold air and or heat in. But well, I mean, you do what they do with window air conditioners where you only open it like a third of the way and you put a board or something in the other chunk. So it's only the vent that's going outside. Yeah. And then there's there's just no guarantee uh, that it's actually going to get rid of all the odor from the resin since the other residents of the house uh they're like bloodhounds their noses are much better than mine and as soon as i open that in the garage they know on the other side of the house in the basement that the resin has been opened i also saw some recommendations for trying clear resins uh, particularly like whites and grays tend to have less odor than the opaque resins that i've been using oh yeah that might work i think when i'm feeling a bit less overwhelmed and have the mental capacity to try and futz around with it more might do some more experiments and trying to figure out like where the sweet spots are for the various print settings. Since right now I'm just kind of like throwing a model in there with, you know, whatever settings feel good in the moment and just it either prints or fails as it will. So I'm not putting a whole lot of scientific rigor into it at the moment. The joys of 3d printing. It's 3d printing. It's more of an art. It's more of an art than a science. I didn't quite believe it when another podcast, uh, the Game 4 podcast, said that 3D printing was its whole other separate hobby in addition to tabletop gaming. I should have believed him when he said that, because it definitely requires its own investment in time and resources. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, that was my overlong explanation of the last two days. For myself, I got together with some people and played Root. The board game? I haven't played Root. I've heard it's good, though. It's good. It's very complicated. And part of that is because it's more like four different board games. Because it's very asymmetrical. And each faction has its own set of rules and operates totally differently to the other factions. That sounds frustrating. I wouldn't say frustrating. It makes it harder to learn because it's hard to answer questions if another player is like, wait, how do I do this thing? Because they use their tools. They they use the same tools that you have in a totally different way. Sounds kind of like playing Dune. I'm not sure. I don't think I've played Dune that uses that. Um, it's very asymmetrical, though. And everybody gains victory points in different ways. So it's interesting because you never quite know what your opponent is going to do or what their strategy to do something is. That might have to be one for like our own dedicated board game group since I keep seeing it and I'm like, yeah, the look and the aesthetic and all that seems like it would appeal to my normal group. It's fantastic. Yeah. Here, the more I read about it and like hear about the actual rules, I'm like, yeah, they would not enjoy this game. I mean, it depends. You and I should really get together and do the two-player one because it handles the two-to-four-player setup really well in that you you can play a bunch of different styles of two-player game just by changing what two factions you're using. And then 
the base game comes with four different factions. So in a four-player game, each person takes one of the factions, and each player is trying to win in a different manner. So it's a uh, yeah, it it's a good good call, fun game. It's one that's on my list. Just haven't gotten around to it. Yeah, I've also started getting stuff written up for my next two D and D games, um, which I'll since those are going to happen before the next episode. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to say anything. Just know that I have prepared intricate plans and designs. I can't say anything about my D&D game because you're one of the players. Yes. Just just say that you've prepared things for it. And I already ask you enough questions about being a DM anyway. And I respond with advice that is not specific to the campaign we're in. Huzzah. But speaking of Dungeons & Dragons, our topic today, the Warlock. Yay! Ooh, the spookiest of magic users. Warlocks are magic users that gain their arcane powers from making a deal with some sort of powerful magical entity. Depending on the individual warlock, this could be anything from the devil, or a specific devil, fiend, whatever, or Cthulhu, or some other far realm deity, or a genie, or a powerful magical weapon that just gives them abilities. And the these entities that they're getting powers from, they re are referred to as packs, like you make a deal with the entity, but it's not, it doesn't have to specifically be a deal. You could be a, you know, you could inadvertently get this power, perhaps, or get it by accident, or, like, force the entity if it's a magic weapon or something you could force it to give you these abilities it's there's a lot of flexibility in the warlock for how you want to play it and what sort of backstory you get and i think that's one of the big appeals of the warlock is how much flexibility there is in the backstory and how much flexibility there is with the magical powers that you get from it so what happens if you if you take a uh, sorcerer and tempt them with additional magic, magic powers from a devil, Does are they just like a beefed-up sorcerer, or do they become a warlock in that case? Uh, they would retain their sorcerer spells, and they'd also get some warlock abilities. And it's actually... A single-level dip into warlock is probably the best single-level dip you can do while multiclassing. And I will bring up why that is when we get to the specific abilities that the 5th edition class has. It's going to do a little loan of a million power points. But the history of warlocks as a thing is kind of vague. The term warlock is believed to be derived from Old English and appeared in early modern Scots. That is the, like, Scottish dialect of... I don't know if it's fully its own language or if it's an English dialect or something in between, but... Early modern Scots, where it was used as the male equivalent of a witch. In that era and, like, location, the connotation of witchcraft was that of people making deals with the devil in order to get magical powers. And was looked down upon because it was seen as being antithetical to Christianity, which was still kind of in the process of stamping out the various pagan religions. 
that had existed in the countryside of Scotland, England, Ireland, and, you know, the other Celtic regions for generations before Christianity got imported. So, big negative implication, and the notion that you would make deals with the devil and break the oaths of Christianity and baptism and all that nonsense. Are the exact details of using the term wizard, warlock, sorcerer, magician, alchemist, whatever, to indicate different things are, are kind of loose. Nobody was really like, oh, that person's a warlock and that one's a wizard and that one's evil and that one's good. Doing magic was all just kind of a magic thing and people would describe themselves with whichever one they liked. Or if an author was writing about it, they would use whichever term they preferred. And the only response was, burn the witches! Yes. All the terms were pretty much interchangeable. And so talking about like specific warlocks and stuff isn't as much of a thing. We'll, we'll talk a little more about the history of magic and like the root of where the terms for magic magicians and stuff comes from in our next Dungeons and Dragons episode in two weeks about the wizard, because that's kind of the big granddaddy of all magic in Dungeons and Dragons. So warlocks, however, did not show up in the early editions of Dungeons and Dragons. They first showed up as a class in 3.5. This makes them the most recently introduced base class in Dungeons and Dragons. And again, I'm not counting the Blood Hunter. They're not in the player's handbook, and I don't care for them. <laughs> yeah, I don't even think I remember much of Warlock back in 3.5. Apparently, I wasn't paying attention. In 3.5, Warlocks were not a base class. They did not show up until the complete arcane source book. That would explain why. Yes, they were not in the player's handbook. They were not in any of that. They were sort of a secondary class that showed up in a specific thing for just casters, the complete arcane. They weren't true spellcasters, but instead used invocations to perform spell-like abilities. The key one being Eldritch Blast, which fires a bolt of magical energy. The big change for them from all other spellcasters up to this point in Dungeons & Dragons was the essentially unlimited nature of their magic. Unlimited power! Other casters had a certain number of spells that they could use each day. Warlocks did not. On the other hand, Warlocks only got invocations and not real spells. This sort of thing about how you get specific things to you and a certain number that you could use each day was really the forerunner of the 4th edition style powers. So in 4th edition, Warlocks were added to the player's handbook with various powers, now referred to as spells, making them much more like the other casters, and abilities based on what pact they made to get their powers, depending on whether it was Fiend or Great Old One or whatever. The inclusion of Warlocks and the core concept is one of the things that I think 4th edition did right. They provide a much... They provide a very different cast... like, magic user, and... That gives a lot more um, 
options for players looking to do something slightly different while still doing all the magic. 5th edition did a fantastic job of recognizing the things that previous editions did well, and that includes things that 4th edition did well, which is why they brought in the Warlock as a core class, including it in the player's handbook. Warlocks at first level pick an otherworldly patron, which determines the source of their magic and a number of specific features they can draw on. We're going to go through all of them in detail a little later on. They are essentially half-casters, with a substantially limited number of spells they can learn, none of them above 5th level, and far fewer spell slots than other magic classes, usually just two at a time. The thing is, they get all their spell slots back after a short rest. So most warlocks don't run out unless they are doing a lot of encounters very quickly, or like very long encounters. And that thing, that thing where they get spell slots back after a short rest... That's why people like taking a single level of Warlock when they're also doing a caster. It's going to get a, a little bit of refreshment from my patron. Well, no, because if you're a sorcerer and you have 10 spell slots and you take a level of Warlock and you get two more spell slots, then anytime you get a you take a rest, you get all your spell slots back. All right, then I'm going to beer bong these spell slots. Like, as a sorcerer who has a level of Warlock, all of your spells come back in a short rest instead of just your Warlock ones, because it doesn't specify just your Warlock ones. Yeah, boy, get some. So essentially, taking a level of Warlock as another caster is using your patron's magical power to, like, recharge yourself every time you need more magic. I hope you've got a friendly patron. Some of them are friendly. Some of them are not. That's really more for the dungeon master of your particular group to determine, though. At second level, warlocks get Eldritch Invocations, which allows them to pick from a list of varied special magical powers. A bunch of these are things like casting a certain spell without using spell slots to give you magical armor or teleportation or something. Um, other ones that give you useful abilities, like utilities, like uh, dark vision, or reading any language, or and then there's some that affect spells that you already cast, making them more powerful, or cut their longer distances, or cast quicker, things like that. You get a limited number of invocations, and that increases as you level up. At third level, warlocks get a packed boon, a specific gift from their patron that provides a, a single, uh, kind of a single strong ability, and also changes what invocations are available to them, because there are a bunch of invocations that you kind of need to that apply to a specific boon. Uh, the boons are the chain, the blade, the tome, and the talisman. The chain gives you a familiar. The blade gives you a magic summonable weapon. The Tome gives you a book with a bunch of extra spells. And the Talisman gives you an amulet that you can use to help with ability checks and some other stuff. At higher levels, Warlocks get a Mystic Arcanum, or a series of Mystic Arcanums, which is where they get access to higher level spells. Essentially, you get to pick a single spell of each level 6th and above that you can cast once per day. That's fun. 
But again, you don't start getting those until, well, when other classes would start getting those same levels of spells, essentially. Come on, man, don't hold me back. You're really held back in that the fact that you can only cast it once per day. And you only get one spell of that level, and you can't really change which one you know once you pick one. I can't think of a useless spell off the top of my head to make a joke there. Well, if you pick something like, say, Mordekainen's Mansion, it's cool and all, but it's a pretty high-level spell to just be able to summon a mansion. Especially if, you know, you need to do anything else with that spell slot. I guess it would be, it'd be very roleplay specific. Like if you had a, if you had like a gangster warlock and you needed a place to hide out after a heist, being able to summon that once a day would be pretty useful. Yeah, and there's some fun things you could do with that. But there are spells that are, like there's a lot of high level combat spells and a lot of high level utility spells. And as a warlock, you have to pick one spell from any from the warlock spell list, and that's all you can do for that level. So you're, you're kind of very much limited in a way that other classes are not. So like I mentioned, warlock subclasses are based on their source of power, their otherworldly patrons. These subclasses are the Archfey, the Fiend, the Great Old One, the Celestial, the Hexblade, the Fathomless, and the Genie. In the player's handbook, you get the three, the first three, the Archfey, the Fiend, and the Great Old One. The Archfey is a warlock that has gone to the fairies to get magical power. That could go horribly, horribly wrong. Or horribly, horribly right. The Fae are tricksy, but they ne- don't actually tell lies. They're classic folklore and mythology creatures. Pact of the Archfey Warlocks get bonus spells, or sort of expanded spell lists, that involve charming, beguiling, making your foes fall asleep, casting illusions. They get the ability to force enemies to become frightened or charmed. At higher levels, they can teleport away when they get hurt, become immune to charm effects. And eventually get this cool ability where they can charm an enemy and stick them in an illusion of shadows and magic and stuff for a minute. Enjoy your trip. Yeah, where they are frightened or charmed by the mage. And the only thing they can see is the mage, or is the warlock, and this maze of shadow magic. Fun little illusion, great way to like lock down an enemy for a minute. Like, you you cast it on one person, and they can't do anything until, you know, most of a fight is passed. Uh, Then you get the Pact of the Fiend. The classic one where you've made a deal with the devil, or a devil, or some kind of fiend. Any creature from the lower planes, really. You get a variety of extra spells, most of which are fire-based. This is how warlocks get fireball. You get temporary hit points when you take a hostile creature out. Eventually, you'll gain bonuses to saving throws, resistance to certain types of damage. And eventually, my one of my favorite abilities, the one to hit someone and throw them through a portal to hell. <laughs> At what level do you get drafted into the Blood War? Well, you hit somebody with an attack and then 
hurl them through hell, which is the name of the ability, and they take a giant amount of damage and, like, drop back in around later going, oh my god, I just saw the devil and he was, like, playing guitar and it was metal. I saw the Doom Slayer. Yeah, and he, like, high-fived me as we went past. Pact of the Fiend is a classic choice, and it's also very good if you're playing a tiefling, because that's what everyone expects already. You're just getting power from your grandfather at that point. Granddad granddad always uh, slips me a fiber every time I see him. Uh, that's the warlock as trust fund kid. <laughs> I like it. On the other end of Trust Fund Kid, we have the Great Old One Warlocks, sometimes referred to as Goo, because G-O-O. Yes. It's the Cthulhu one. It's Lovecraft. It's power from unknowable beings of madness that reside in the Far Realms. I feel this strange urge to go walk into the sea. No, that would be a different one. That would be a different one entirely. It's got the weird stuff. Uh, you get telepathy, you eventually get the ability to impose disadvantage on attack rolls against you once per rest, protection from other people trying to read your thoughts, resistance to psychic damage, and eventually a power where you can enthrall another creature, essentially semi-permanently charming it to do what you want to do. Um, it's, a, it's basically a curse. Remove curse gets rid of it, as does a few other things that break charm. But you can... Make yourself a thrall that follows your orders. Always helpful. Now, these are not always positive patrons. But not everything that will make a deal to give you power is hostile. And the next one is the Celestial. Celestial Warlocks are ones who have gained their powers from beings on the upper planes. Angels, unicorns, coatls, anything that's, like, good-aligned and deals with multiple realities. They get healing and helpful spells added to their list. They get the ability to channel healing energy. They get resistance to radiance damage and can do extra radiant and fire damage when they cast spells that do that. Eventually, after resting, they get temporary hit points and can give out hit points to other allied creatures. You get a hit point. You get a hit point. You get a hit point. Yeah, temporary hit points, but yeah. They're just like, ah, we've all rested, and it was very nice, and so I'm just going to dump healing energy into everyone else. And at their capstone thing, they can channel a bunch of healing energy instead of making a death-saving throw. That's fun. And sort of heal, like, instantly heal themselves, jump back up, and release a burst of radiant damage around them, kind of doing a phoenix thing. I'm not dead yet. Oh, you knock me down? Well, I'm gonna, like, burst into flames and hit everyone around me and hop back up and be like, Hey, I'm back. They're fun. They they provide an interesting alternative if you want to do something like a paladin, but you don't want to wield a sword, and you also don't want to be a cleric. I just want to be different. And then we have the Hexblade, who are the... Probably the edgiest <laughs> of the collection of subclasses for the Warlock. Hexblades are warlocks that like to stab things. They've made packs with powerful magic weapons usually linked to the Shadowfell. Their bonus spells are mostly focused on combat, things like shield and some of the smite spells. They have the ability to 
cast hexes, sort of cursing people in combat, giving the warlock ongoing bonuses against a particular foe. Eventually, they get the ability to, when they kill somebody, they can turn them into a specter, a short-lived undead ally that lasts for about an hour. That's a dick move. And then their curses and hexes get stronger and last longer and can, like, jump between people when they've knocked them out. Hexblades are also... They also get the ability to, like, use heavier armor and better weapons and stuff. So that they're the warlocks that are good at fighting in hand-to-hand combat. They're less casters and more marshals. And like I said, they're the edgy ones because, oh, I'm a Hexblade, so I'm going to... Use my magical sword and blah, blah, blah. Add, add a rogue in there and you've got a class so edgy, just, you can't touch it. It's too sharp. That's exactly where you're going with that. Um, the next one is Fathomless. If you thought the great old one, Warlock, was the one that got tentacles, you were wrong. The Fathomless Warlock has made a pact with something from the elemental plane of water or the deep oceans, and as a result is very good at swimming. Their extra spells are all water and storm based. They can summon a spectral tentacle to attack foes nearby. They also, like I said, they're good at swimming. They get a swimming speed and the ability to breathe underwater. Eventually, they get cold resistance, the ability to talk to anyone while underwater, their magical tentacles helps to defend them. They get the Ivard's Black Tentacles spell for free. And at higher levels can teleport themselves and allies to the nearest body of water. This teleportation is described as a whirl of tentacles. <laughs> now I just got to figure out a way to combine the Cthulhu tentacles. You could almost say that, like, Dagon from the Lovecraftian mythos, is fathomless, because he's all about the ocean. Oh, yeah. That works. He's the ocean guy, so he makes as much sense as a fathomless patron as he does as a great old one patron. So, yeah, if you if you want to do tentacle stuff, if you're a Japanese school schoolgirl, fathomless is your call. And the last one, but not the least one, is the genie. Phenomenal cosmic power. Itty bitty living space. <laughs> Warlocks who are packed of the genie draw on the power of a genie. Either a Dao, a Jin, an Ifrit, or a Merid, depending on what sort of elemental power you want. Earth, air, fire, or water. They get expanded elemental spells based on that, plus a vessel that holds a small fragment of the genie's power. I would pick a lamp, personally, but I like that sort of traditional folklore aspect. Dude, you could totally hold a genie in that bong, man. Yeah, that would make sense for an Ifrit, because it's fire. That's exactly where I was going with that joke. The vessel is an extra-dimensional space that the warlock can enter and, like, take shelter in. At higher levels, you get resistance matching your particular elemental flavor plus temporary flying speed, and eventually can bring people into the genie's vessel with you and, like, take short rests in there. At the highest level, you can ask your genie for a small wish, which essentially has them casting any spell of 6th level or lower. And I don't mean any warlock spell, I mean any spell from any class. Like, 
Wish does, but for at a lower level. I'm assuming you can't uh, have your genie pal wish away the Tarask then. No, because that's a high level function of wish. That would be like a ninth level wish. Disappointing. And uh, you can't replicate that with your genie wish. Yes, but also it doesn't backfire the way a normal wish could. Because remember, the normal wish spell has a backfire clause. I don't think I knew that. Okay, so the wish spell... We're a little off topic from Warlocks, but not that much. The wish spell has a couple of basic functions. The first one is that it can replicate any other spell. If you do that, it replicates that spell exactly as stated. There's no backfire function there. It just does the thing. The second thing it can do is, like, certain specific, like, things, like keeping the Tarrasque dead or bringing someone fully back to life or... I want to say there's a couple of other specific things. I wish, I wish I was a fish. Yeah, that's polymorph, not wish. Probably also uh, fathomless as well. Yes, and fathomless. The last thing that wish can do is essentially anything else you want. But when you do the anything else you want, the dungeon master gets to sort of figure out how that's going to happen. And the more you put into it, the more it's likely to go weird. You're in the find out phase now, son. Yes, that's perhaps the best description is if you wish, oh, I wish all my enemies were dead. The dungeon master gets to determine what that means and how that reacts. And, Oh, maybe you got flung a thousand years into the future when all your enemies have died of natural causes. Oops. It's up to the DM to determine how stuff functions when you make the open-ended, like, outside of the existing spells things. And that's when they're allowed to mess with you. If you're just replicating a sp an existing spell, that's fine, just replicate the spell. But if you wish for something ridiculous and powerful then yeah, the Dungeon Master is going to mess with you in return. That's how that goes. Don't tempt the Dungeon Master. That's one of those things where you're basically just giving the Dungeon Master a blank check to mess with you. So don't. Do, it, do reasonable things with Wish if you get it. Um, it's sort of the opposite of the Deck of Many Things in that way, because the Deck of Many Things is the DM giving the players the ability to totally mess with their game. <laughs> and we'll, we should really have an episode where we just talk about the weird magic items of Dungeons and Dragons. I had a uh, co-worker at my last job who kept a list on his computer desktop of weird magical items that he had come up with. Yeah, I don't mean those. I mean existing ones that have like bizarre or super specific uses. That's a, that'll be a future episode. But yeah, so those are the Warlock subclasses. And as always on this podcast, we have to ask ourselves, if we were making a Modron Warlock, which one of these subclasses would he get? How would this Modron Warlock get his magical powers? And what would he do with them? Um, I would do a Fathomless Modron and have him be like a little tiny submarine. Oh, I like it. 
That is, um, that's, <laughs> that would be very funny. I don't, I don't know really like how the tentacles would really play into it. I just heard Fathomless and Modron and imagined a tiny little submarine being. Um, I could see it as being like mechanical tentacles that are like covered in water. Be like a 2000 leagues under the sea thing. Yeah. Or just like jets of water that he shoots at stuff. See, I think the fun one or a, a fun one for this would be a fiend warlock, a fiend Modron warlock who did it via contract and the contract is super strict. I mean, I can think of a creature probably less beneficial for a fiend to write a contract with than a Modron, because, I mean, they're the Modron's probably going to hold up their end of the bargain. Yeah, no, see, I like the notion of the fiend and the Modron ended up in this contract, and so it is the most, like, detailed and laid-out contract that either of them has ever managed to write or work on. And so it's basically a lot of lawyering over the terms of the contract and, oh, I get this many spells per day and then I have to do this for you and da 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 And very specific clauses and stuff. And every time, like, he wants to do something, he has to, like, invoke the specific clause of the contract in order to make the effect happen. Even Asmodeus is tired of your bullshit. Something like that, where he, you know... I invoked clause, uh, I invoked paragraph seven, clause 13, and thus cast fireball. Whoosh. Yep, I like that one. That's a good one. Yeah, just a sort of rules lawyer Modron. Um, I think that could be a lot of fun. And that would just let you play one of the very standard Modron, or one of the very standard warlock classes. So that's a nice touch. But yes, warlocks. As a class, I really like them. Okay, mechanically, Eldritch Blast is not as good as you think it is. Eldritch Blast is generally not as good as you might think, because while it does 1d10 damage at range, it doesn't get the additional damage that a, say, heavy crossbow would from the dexterity modifier of whoever's firing it until higher levels when you start to get your Eldritch Invocations, and even then... It's about the same as a heavy crossbow. You can start adding on some cool features for it, but you spend a lot of power doing that instead of doing other things. And it, it, it's not broken. Let's go with that. It's not as good as you might instantly think when you're like, wow, that's a lot of damage being flung out every turn. Because someone with a crossbow can do the same thing for the most part. Good enough for me. But it's good, and I like it. And I like Warlocks, and I like the roleplay aspects of Warlocks a lot. Because the patron is something that the Dungeon Master can use to direct a Warlock to do a specific thing. The, if the Dungeon Master wants the Warlock to and the rest of the party to investigate something, they can have the patron like reach out and tell them, Go investigate the docks and do my dark bidding there. And then the party will go to the... And then the warlock will go down to the docks and discover plot-relevant things that the rest of the party needs to know about. 
You can use your patron to sort of move things along. Keep the game moving. Yes. And there have been a bunch of homebrew ideas for patrons that you could use for warlocks. From um, one that believes that there is a strange entity in the that watches over and controls everything, and the way to appease this entity is by bringing them snacks, and they, you know, ensure that all things happen as they should, and use chances and dice rolls to... Yeah. yeah. It, someone that's a pact of the Dungeon Master warlock, essentially. I'm going to have to look through uh, some of the books and come up with a deep-cut patron. Um, the other one would, of course, be the Patreon patron, <laughs> where it's a warlock who has a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of generally weaker magical entities that each chip in just a little bit and in exchange to give it magic power. And in exchange, they, they kind of act like a streamer or somebody else and do bonus content for their dedicated patrons. Or, oh, I this, sacri- this week's sacrifice is dedicated to my... Ten cantrips and above, patrons. Give me five dollars, and I'll do a painting tutorial without a shirt on. But the catch is, you're still just going to only see my hands anyway. Yeah. Or, you know, I'll burn down an orphanage or whatever. Because, you know, patron, you're, you're still a warlock. You're still doing magical shenanigans. My patrons told me to do it. Yes, that's uh, that's something that comes up. So, I've had a couple of warlocks in my games. Um, I have one in one of my games right now. In a previous game, I had a great old one patroned warlock, and I had them their patron, like, give them some inexplicable dreams, direct them to do a couple of things. And the big thing was they found a strange box that no one could unlock. Oh, uh, I remember this story. That the warlock was drawn to, and they found it on the... Uh, They found it buried beneath a sailor who had drowned at a crossroads in the middle of, like, a forest, nowhere near any water. And so the warlock was like, oh my god, what's in the box? I have to protect this box. I have to da-da-da-da-da. That game ended before I could figure out what was in the box. Damn. I did not have anything brilliant, like, selected yet. It's the... It's, uh... City of Rayla. Yeah, well... Do it uh, Superman style, just a little bottled city. A tiny bottled city? Yep. I mean, I was I was trying to come up with something really cool and interesting that would add to their character. And, um, well, the game ended before I could do that. That game also had a rogue slash warlock who became a warlock after finding a necklace of summoning that would allow him to summon you know, a fiendish entity. And, um, on getting it, he got the, he like was offered a deal by the devil that was bound to the necklace. And he took it. And I told him when he leveled up next, you can pick warlock. And he was like, Oh, that sounds fun. I I tried to tempt our sorcerer into, uh, a fiendish pact. It didn't work. I was hoping you would take it. I've seen a lot of dungeon masters who like to tempt people with, like, warlock packs. The thing with that is, when you do it, you have to make it a player's choice. Like, they have to choose, essentially, that their next level is going to be warlock. 
um, if they make this deal. And you need to make it uh, like you need to make it clear, even if it's out of character, that by doing this, you agree to take your next level in Warlock. Because if you do it like, oh, by grasping the hand of the Fae, you have become his. He has become your patron, and now you get to be a warlock. That removes player agency, and that's bad. Don't remove player agency. I've got a warlock in my current game who is Pact of the Archfey, and he's got a lot of different things going on with his character. Um, I think one of the fun, a lot of the fun in that comes from his backstory, and the fact that he asked me to do his arch, his patron Archfey as sort of being like Handsome Jack from Borderlands, where he's just a total asshole <laughs> who calls him up to, like, tell him how terrible the warlock is and how great the patron is. I, I can dig it. Also, he has a unicorn made of diamonds. <laughs> oh, Butt Stallion? Yes. Uh, I did not call it Butt Stallion, but I definitely included the fact that the patron's like, oh, I got a unicorn made of diamonds recently. It's amazing. And all the other party members who had met, who were meeting the patron were like, can we see it? <laughs> I'm honestly kind of surprised there hasn't been an attempt at an official uh, Borderlands tabletop RPG. Uh, I feel like it would be very hard because Borderlands, for all its flash and style, is a very crunchy game. Mm-hmm. It's all about the hard numbers and the guns and the different types of guns and switching into different guns and shooting more bullets and guns that shoot other guns and guns that have legs and guns that do different elemental damages. I like the I like the the leg gun. That one's a favorite. The leg gun. Yes, I actually in my current Borderlands playthrough I have a leg gun. <laughs> I also have the gun that shoots other guns. Borderlands is so weird. But all that sort of stuff plays a lot better in a video game than it would in a tabletop game where you would have to track all this different information and all these slightly different guns and how you would handle that mechanically would be just have to come up with your own weirdly comedic setting no i mean you could almost do the borderlands setting i'd have to think about it um but you'd want something that's crunchy enough to make the weapons flavorful, because that's one of the key aspects of the game, and that also isn't so crunchy that it slows down gameplay dramatically every time you try to get into a fight and people switch to guns that are better or are worse. I think I just, I'm just looking for an excuse to be silly. That's, that's fair enough. I could almost see a Borderlands war game or board game being better. I think there is a game that was on Kickstarter or some kind of crowdfunding thing. I remember seeing ads for it, but uh, I have a bad history with Kickstarter games like that and just kind of licensed video game properties in general. Uh, so I made a purposeful attempt to ignore it. So maybe when it eventually comes out, I'll look more into it. But I was like, I'm not even going to look at that. I noticed that there was a while ago a Kickstarter for a Horizon Zero Dawn board game. Uh, I think I saw that one as well. I think it should be out officially soon, and I'm going to have to buy it, not for the game, but because the miniatures in it look good. Because it's got the robot dinosaurs. 
they just need to somebody just needs to somebody just needs to make the miniatures and just be like there's no game it's just miniatures i just want board or uh, miniatures of just all the video games like i'm pretty sure about 90 percent of the reason i ended up with all the dark soul stuff was because i just really like the miniatures yeah i just want high quality miniatures of all the robot dinosaurs and robot like animals from horizon zero dawn because those would be great for any sort of science fiction war game or tabletop game where you are using miniatures. Yep. Yeah, so send somebody send me those, please. You can find me on Twitter and tell me that you have them and that you want to send them to me and I will tell you where to send them. Give us $10 on Patreon and you will have the privilege of sending us free stuff. Yeah, we don't have a Patreon, so uh, it'll be that easy. Just just drop drop an envelope with five dollars in the park. I'll find it. Any park. We're just that good. Yep. So I think that's warlocks. We like them. I think they're one of the better classes. I think they're a lot of the design elements of them is very modern and is drawn more from fourth edition than from previous editions. And it's done that in a pretty solid way that makes them entertaining and playable and a good introduction for people who are perhaps just starting to get into Dungeons and Dragons and might have trouble with role-playing because the patron aspect is a great way to drive and motivate them um, to have something that specifically forces them to go do these quests. So yeah, play a warlock in your next campaign. Woo! Woo! So on this podcast, we have a segment called Board Game Corner. And today, Ed is going to talk about a board game. Yay! So you listened to the last episode, listened to me gas on about Advanced Squad Leader for about an hour, and you you think to yourself, man, I really like World War II and all the battles, but that just seems way too intense for me. Well, then a good option would probably be, probably be Memoir 44. Axis and Allies. I've never played Axis and Allies, but I know people have strong opinions on it. I I want to play the 1916 or no 1914 Axis and Allies because we all know that World War One was the superior conflict, but I've heard it is a inferior game. No, World War One can't be the superior conflict. It didn't have any aircraft carriers. I will f- I will fight you on this point, and I will drag NATO into the conflict whether they want it or not. Yeah, but you have to fight me using World War One. I- technology and i get to use world war ii technology so um your trench guns are nothing compared to my nukes luigi cadorna begs to differ luigi cadorna is getting nuked we cannot we cannot fail we will just continue over and over and over and over again well i mean if you want to run your entire army into the teeth of my machine gun and tank fire that is historically accurate i was gonna say that's the spirit Anyway, uh, if you want something that's World War II themed, but is a lot less crunchy than Advanced Squad Leader or some of the other uh, old school Hex Encounter games out there, Memoir 44 from Days of Wonder is a good option. Um, the gameplay is fairly, fairly simple. You have artillery, infantry and armor, and then you have defensive works like pillboxes, um, barbed wire. And then you have terrain such as cities, hills, rivers, and forests. And the game comes with a set of scenarios. Most of them from the base set are 
Normandy and Central Europe. You'll set up the map and then you'll have a certain um, object objective that one of the players is trying to accomplish, usually sit on an objective or uh, destroy enough opposing units to get either six medals of honor or six crosses of iron. You get one medal for each full unit that you destroy. And that's about it. Uh, infantry and armor and the artillery all have ranges. You attack the other player, you roll some dice, depending on how you roll. Uh, one or more of their little models gets removed and you guys keep going until one player reaches the objective. Uh, as far as the presentation of the game, it looks very nice. The illustrations are well done. Uh, the models, uh, I don't even know if you really call them models, pawns, figures, Tokens. are uh, nicely made. Um, there's a good range of scenarios. Um, I think the game is a little bit past its prime. Back when it came out, they had like campaign books uh, that had big extensive campaigns that you could do. There are a lot of expansions. There's an air expansion that had uh, miniature airplanes in it that unfortunately is now out of print just because it was so expensive for them to produce compared to the other expansions. There's expansions for the Mediterranean, uh, the Pacific, and the Eastern Front, which adds in Russians, Russians, Japanese, and Italians, respectively. So I don't think it's quite the game for me. It plays a bit too simply. I don't know if I would call it necessarily a beer and pretzels game, but there's just not quite enough crunch in there for me. But if you're somebody who's into World War II and just doesn't want to go uh, headfirst into the deep end, Memoir 44 is probably a good place you can start. All right. That does sound like something I'd want to play. Yeah, I'm I'm undecided what I want to do with my copy. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll have to maybe we'll have to try some of it when we can uh, game in person again. Maybe you maybe you'll have a more positive experience with it than I did. Not to say that it's a bad game. It's just that it's for me, it's it's too gamey. It doesn't uh, scratch that simulation itch that I get for historical war games. All right. So Memoir 44. Good for games. Not so great for simulation. Probably not a role-playing thing. Um, Unless you want a role-play being, you know, forced to fight in World War II as a conscript. I'm going to role-play MacArthur and just be batshit crazy. Never role-play MacArthur. Also, never role-play Patton. I'm going to flip the board over and say that I nuked the, nuked the game. Yeah, no, that would be like Memoir 1954. <laughs> And also, never roleplay anyone on the German side. I don't care that you think their uniforms from Hugo Boss were nice. Do not roleplay Nazis. Yeah, there is uh, one, one dude who shows up to advanced squad leader tournaments wearing an SS garrison cap. It's very awkward. I can understand the uh, temptation to wear themed hats. I have a Soviet Ushanka myself, but... Of all the hats to wear to a tournament, don't wear that one. Don't be that guy. Yeah, I mean, unless you, unless the only reason I would wear that hat is so that I could do the bit where I take it off halfway through and go, are we the baddies? <laughs> also works. That's the only reason you would ever see me in that hat. And also, I 
probably wouldn't want any photos taken of me in that hat because fuck Nazis. Yep, fuck Nazis. And on that note, that ends our podcast. We've been Knoll Country. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Knoll Country. You can find us on Instagram at Knoll Country. Thanks for listening to our episode. You can like, subscribe, rate. I don't know whatever you do on whatever podcast platform. We're happy that you listened. Uh, Ed, got any advertisements for us? Uh, follow me on Instagram at Adam Madness. Watch me pull myself out of an existential death spiral and uh, finally post some progress on game stuff. Uh, support your re- Ukrainian relief funds to uh, get people out of where they uh, are and get them where they need to go. And that's about it. Yeah. Go Knowles. Go Knowles. <laughs>